Do you believe in Jesus? Yes, sir. Well, you're going to meet him. Creed, where we connect faith and reason to ordinary experience by steel-manning aspects of Christendom. Today, we will be discussing the resurrection of Jesus. Joining me today is my good friend, Ian. Well, good evening, Nate. Greetings, listeners, and greetings, fellow heretics. All right, well, let's jump right in. Um, So, like we said today, we're going to be discussing the resurrection of Jesus. And just to kind of start by putting this in the framework of our conceptual landscape. Yep. This particular issue, Ian, where does this kind of land for you in our conceptual landscape? Yeah, that's a good question, because with respect to the historical Jesus, to me, almost, I think that almost that entire conversation is basically fact-based. I don't think there was really a lot of hypotheses left over when we're trying to understand whether or not Christ was a physical person that walked around and did this and that. Uh, uh, whereas, of course, you know, belief in God was very much an act of uh, faith. In this particular case, it's, I, I guess it's a combination, because you have, on the one hand, you have the facts of the matter, which we will discuss, but the question is, what do you do with them? And so I think the ultimate decision about what to do with them, I think the resurrection itself still is a tenet of faith, but it's surrounded by a body of facts that we'll discuss. Yeah, and so in this program this evening, we're not going to be proving the resurrection as a fact. Uh, no. We are going to present the evidence for and against. We're going to, de- and we're also going to discuss the consequences of denying that Jesus, that the resurrection of Jesus took place. That's one of the things we're going to do. Right, and then I guess that's that's typically how you have to discuss articles of faith. Is that well, by its definition, you cannot posit a fact-based test, and therefore you examine the consequences of whether it's true or not, and then you say, well, can I, can I live with this? You know, what does it mean? So yeah, that's, that's, where, that's where it lands with me. How about you? Well, you know, just, uh, yeah, I guess for me, it's probably something of, uh, there's certain aspects of the resurrection that you could, could fit into a hypothesis, potentially, I would say. Okay. For example, like the em- empty tomb. Right. Was there an empty tomb or not? That is something that most people could say I could develop an hypothesis. You know, that's an hypothesis that I could posit a test for. I could potentially turn that into a fact in my conceptual landscape. Sure. Yeah, I agree. I guess with that, though, I mean, from what I understand, isn't that pretty? I mean, I know we'll get into it, but I, I guess I've always just taken that as a fact. It to is. Me, to to it, me, yeah. the empty tomb is a fact. Now, admittedly, I guess for me personally, it is a hypothesis because I haven't looked at it. <laughs> so I guess you're right. Yeah, for me it is a hypothesis, uh, but again, the way I would check is go and go and look. Yeah, I would say you know we're going to talk about some historical evidence. We're going to talk about some physical evidence, and I don't think any of that though can lead to turning the resurrection itself into a fact. So I think we're probably on the same. No, page I don't. I don't think so either. I don't think so either. So one question that I really want to start this off with is why consider the resurrection in the first place. And so the reason why we're taking up this question is because answering it, you know, one way or the other 
it, it kind of is about um, the resurrection itself is the cornerstone of the Christian faith. So if it didn't happen, Christianity kind of crumbles on itself pretty right. easily. Right, as Paul says. So, you know, we wouldn't have any type of gospel, no account, no letter in the New Testament, no faith, no church, no worship, if, if, there, was, if there wasn't this central belief in the resurrection itself. Sure, and you know you could say so what, and that's fine. Um, I guess my thinking is that I think, as I stated in either the conceptual landscape or the intro- introductory episode, is that to me the two tenets of the Christian faith are that there exists a, a a personal, self-existent origin of all that is, and that this being has disclosed itself through the person of Christ. So now I lose that. What does the listener lose? Uh, I'm not really sure what the listener loses conceptually, and yet. I think that there is a lot to be gained by affirming it. And I think at the very least, what you if you deny the resurrection, you kind of have a difficulty on your hands, which is that how do you explain that which is known, the facts that are on the ground? But again, for the for the listener, uh in a certain sense, they don't have to explain those facts, right? Because if they don't explain those facts, because and and again, we'll get into what those are. If they don't explain, if they don't uh, explain those facts, nothing really bad happens in their life. You know, they don't come and get arrested or something like that. Uh, and so, to me, it's it's more what you gain by affirming it. And in my mind, what you gain by affirming it is you do gain the disclosure of the origin of the universe that the the person behind the universe discloses itself to you and then again if if you if you assume that the disclosure is honest that does give you insight into the nature of the universe and into the nature of man well, those stakes are very large ian <laughs> so well, we'll we'll back it up for it, a minute it, it's larger than a porterhouse 32 <laughs> ounce that's a large stake, Nate. So we spent a lot of time talking on a, a kind of a global level in the last episode about the historical reliability of the Gospels. Right. And this is, uh, the basis for my research for this episode was a from a really good book called uh, The Jesus Inquest, The Case For and Against the Resurrection of Christ. Okay. And So who's that? The author of that book was, one second. TikTok. Charles Foster. Okay. So he he wrote the book. He is a Christian, and he wrote the book when he realized that, uh, you know, we talked last week about the Jesus seminar people, uh, people who deny the historical Jesus, and then, you know, those are the very extreme end. But then he just talked about the skeptical scholars when they write things about, for example, the Gospels and say, hey, things are not consistent here, and there's there might be perfectly reasonable reasons to reject them as historical events. He said, hey, these people have a lot of good points. So he kind of centered his um, his investigation into that on the resurrection itself. What, what his book does is he kind of argues with himself through the book. So, you know, if we were doing this podcast and you only had one person, you know, throwing questions at the other, that's kind of like what he did in this book. Mm-hmm. But it was really good. It's written for a lay person, but he has all the footnotes. It's very well researched. So if you want to dig deeper, you can find it. So I kind of use and that. This, this is Charles Foster Charles Kane. Foster. Charles yep. Foster Kane. So this is a quote from the book that he had. And I think uh, it's important just kind of lay the groundwork. We kind of talked about it last time a little bit. But he said that, by and large, even the most skeptical scholars agree that Jesus existed. 
Most presume that he met his death by crucifixion in more or less the way described in the Gospels, and all except that attempts to harmonize every detail of the death and resurrection accounts are hopeless within the Gospels themselves. No one emerges emerges, uh, from a proper look at the Gospels still believing in verbal inerrancy. So the idea that all these stories are completely accurate in their details in the Gospels, um, there it's it, he's saying it's impossible to harmonize that. And well, I know we're getting a little ahead of ourselves mm-hmm. at this point, but uh, you don't really need the Gospels for that. The Old Testament is quite sufficient for dismissing verbal inerrancy. Yeah, so <laughs> it, it's it's important because part of the arguments uh, that you get with the skeptical scholars is saying like. These two details can't both be true. Right, 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 right. And then you go, okay, well, why did you know? And if you're if you're stuck on trying to harmonize some of those types of things, and we'll talk probably talk about some of those uh, in the conversation, you're just going to put yourself in a corner you can't get out of. It's going to become very frustrating and very demoralizing potentially, <laughs> demoralizing. and not and not and not constructive. <laughs> probably not constructive is probably the better description there. Okay, well, uh, so so to play the role of skeptic here for just a moment, then if we really are going to steel man this. I must admit, I really haven't seen that many resurrections in my time, so the whole thing seems a bit preposterous to me. So why should I even? I mean, can we can we agree, Nate, that uh, Jesus was put to death by the state? Because this this was this, yes. this was the caveat of uh, of a lot of our our conversation last time, which is that. We were talking about the historicity of the Gospels, but we kept saying sans the miracles, right? Yes. Okay, well, now we're getting into the miracles. It was a really complicated drinking game. I got really wasted by the end, because <laughs> Ian just kept saying it. Sans the miracles. <laughs> <laughs> You've heard of pints with Aquinas, now get ready for leaders with theaters. So anyway, uh, right, sans the miracles. So, so now you're bringing up the miracles, a miracle in particular. Uh, it all seems quite preposterous. Why should we? Why should we entertain this idea? Well, and, and that goes back to your conceptual landscape. Uh, there's a lot of people who aren't willing to accept miracles, and uh, we can explore one of those people. It's uh, 18th century scholar David Hume. Oh, Hume! Haven't we beat on him before? We have probably. <laughs> I don't know if we've done it on this show, uh, but he wrote a really influential essay called "Of Miracles" back in the day, and C.S. Lewis, uh, you know, wrote a wrote a uh, opposing, what would you call that, refutation of it in his time. But his main, uh, David Hume's main uh, definition of a miracle is something that happens outside the laws of nature. Okay. And then he follows that up with saying nothing happens outside the laws of nature. Okay. So then miracles are not possible. <laughs> That's logically consistent. It is logically consistent. So he also gives a couple other reasons. So he has four supporting <laughs> points for this. Uh, <laughs> Before you get to those points, though, don't you find it at least a little bit amusing that you have this airtight uh, logical argument, and yet you still feel the need to give four additional reasons? Sure. <laughs> the lady doth protest too much. And so his first one is that there are no historical accounts of miracles which are attested by enough refu- re- reputable men so as to make the event probable. Okay, so let's let's stop there. Let's take these in turn. Okay, so what does he say? There there. One more there are time. no historical accounts of miracles, okay, which are attested by enough reputable reputable uh, men, reputable men yeah. so as to make the event probable. Okay, so this this is this is the difficulty that you often find with uh, with conversations of this type, and in general, I I know I I ragged on William Lane Craig a little bit a few episodes ago uh, for 
getting all uh, uncomfortable with ideas related to infinity. Uh, so now, in the name of equality, I'll hit Hume with the same same kind of thing, which is that Hume is speaking mostly as a philosopher in his writings. He's not a mathematician. And so it's not clear to me how he's estimating the probability. Say this statement again one more time. So that there are no historical events of miracles which right. are attested by enough uh, reputable, reputable men, men so as probability? to make the event probable. Probable. Okay, so the pro- again, the problem with this is, well, Mr. Hume, what would make it probable in your mind? What is, what is the line between impossible, plausible, probable, and certain in your mind? And if you're not gonna, if you're not gonna disclose that, if you're not gonna give a number of reputable men, if you're not going to state what you mean by reputable, then you'll have to forgive me for dismissing your comment out of hand. So, I mean, in the in the case that you made last time, under much duress, as I hurled questions at you, uh, I think you made a decent case for again. Sands to miracles, everything that takes place in the Gospels. And if you're willing to accept that, then wouldn't you at least consider if that maybe those miracles occurred? Wouldn't it at least enter your mind? So in other words, if you were willing to if you were willing to believe a person on every matter of mundane detail, but not on some miraculous statement doesn't that seem a little odd i guess i guess like so for instance i've known you seven years right so far you haven't said anything crazy to me but if you if you were to say dude i know this is gonna sound crazy but i'd at least entertain it (laughs) because i trusted you on those other things so i i i i think that's just that's that's just snobbery that that that's this is this is something that drives me bananas as a mathematician. It's when people try to try to wear the veneer of mathematics or science uh, to give give weight to their arguments. It just irritates me. Yeah, I would say also just from my personal opinion of this statement is that uh, there's so many different things. How do you measure any of this? Like right, as yeah. an engineer, even so it's like, saying. how do you measure? How do you how do you uh, measure with, whether someone is a reliable man to you know get right. something from? You know, oh or yeah. When you say there's no historical accounts of miracles, and I know there's the caveat there, enough reputable men. Well, I mean, how, and then what is your definition how, of probable? Like you said, and how many? How many? I mean, again, let's just for instance, like you mentioned in the last episode, when Paul says, "Hey, five hundred people saw this thing." Maybe Paul's lying, but is 500 enough? Yeah, maybe Paul is not being... People might say Paul is not being... 500 is way too many. It couldn't have been that many. It's like, well, maybe it was 313. Okay. Fine. I mean, the, the point is, is is he's making a point on, you know, quantity. Right. You know. Yeah. Can it just be an order of magnitude? Does it need to be <laughs> exact for you? <laughs> right. So, all right, what's his next point? Okay, people are inclined to want to speak of extraordinary experiences, even to the point of fabricating the miraculous, in order to spread religious truths. Really? Uh, So does that apply equally to uh, the USSR and to Maoist China, where they absolutely tried to stamp out religion? I mean, we're talking about tens of millions of people there. So are you trying to say that so how does that relate to this statement? So people are inclined to want to speak of extraordinary experiences, 
even to the point of fabricating the miraculous in order to spread religious truths. So are you saying that well, the I, USSR tried to fab- fabricate? No, no, no. What I what I'm what I'm saying is 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 that I mean perhaps that okay you're right perhaps that wasn't the best reply but I guess my point is is that uh, it sounds like what he's what he's trying to say there is that hey these people had a they had a goal and they started with the goal in mind and then made up stuff to spread it right. And my point is that well you don't. If your if your goal, I, I guess here's really what I was assuming. Uh, if your if your goal is to basically lie to obtain influence, which is roughly the charge there. Yes. Well, no. then Lenin would be a perfect. Well, example okay, but of that. but my my question is like yes, lying to gain influence. That, that's roughly the charge that he's laying at the feet of Christians, right? Okay. Or religious people in general. Religious people. My only point is, well. If all you're trying to do is gain influence, I mean, you could do that, but you don't have to do that. And people haven't done that. In fact, they've done the opposite of it. So I guess I'm not really like hung up on that. But then the other thing to keep in mind is that, and I I think we'll discuss this in a bit more detail when we get into this, is that uh, this whole episode is us going to be talking about what we're going to do later in the episode. Uh, But Sands the Miracles. Sands the Miracles. Uh, Sands the Miracles. Um, But the point is, is that the Catholic Church, for instance, as it exists today, is not the way the Church existed back then. There were there were consequences for trying to quote spread this religion back then, uh, deleterious consequences. And so, I don't really think that that argument holds in the original context. It might hold today, where you can get uh, people to follow you if you if you say uh, incredible things like that. But you, that that doesn't work back then. At least not in, not in Christendom. So explain the point again that you're making about Christendom particularly. Well, okay, so he's saying that these people are making up... They're, they're making up stories in order to get influence, right? hmm Okay. Well, when Christendom started, if you promulgated these ideas, bad things would happen to you. Ab- absolutely, yes. So yeah, there, there was that no, doesn't there was really no advantage water. to promulgating any of this for the Christians. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, I mean, I don't know, maybe if... You're in the Temple of Aphrodite or something yeah. like that. Maybe then, <laughs> but, uh, in, in the, but that, doesn't, that doesn't hold in the case of the resurrection. Yeah, so the, the third point is miracles are cited as having occurred mainly in areas of ignorance or even barbarism. What a lovely fellow this guy Hume is. So I, I shouldn't say that. I really didn't know him. Uh, maybe he was a great guy personally. I don't know. Um, but again, okay, so that's Hume writing... Hume's writing in the 1800s, You're a nice guy, but we're done professionally. You're a nice guy! You're a nice guy! Seriously, man, you and me, we're f***ing done professionally. (laughs) That that has to, that clip has to go in. (laughs) Okay, sorry. No, you're fine. Uh, Okay, right, back to point three. So, Hume's writing, I believe, in the late 1700s. Does that sound about right to you? Okay, I'm trying to remember my chronology here. Okay, so fine. So he's saying, what did he say? Remote places and... Uh, Areas of ignorance or barbarism. Okay, right. So, yes, I understand that when you're you're writing in the 1700s, talking about the aughts, the first aughts, (laughs) are uh, certainly look like a, a time of barbarism. But, well... Okay, fine. Just double the year then. So now suppose that someone's writing in the year 3400, looking back on Hume. 
Can't he make the same claim about Hume and say, well, you know, people used to deny the existence of miracles, but those people were in an age of barbarism. Yeah. Because it, it, it's, it's, it's relative to the time in which you're writing. And so, again, the problem is, is that, this is one of the problems with Hume, is that he never seems to focus the lens on himself and wonder if the statements he's making fall under the purview of those same statements. And so why can't someone looking at Hume say, this man is living in a remote place in a time of barbarism? Yeah, and I would say, just going back to our specific point of inquiry here on the resurrection of Christ, this happened in Jerusalem, was one of the greatest his, uh, you know, cities in the Roman Empire. Mm-hmm. You know, right. Huge population, lavish, you know, cosmopolitan. You have plenty of people who are following these events and involved in these events who are highly educated, highly, very powerful. You know, you know, just think of the political people. You have Pontius Pilate, Herod, the Sanhedrin, the high priest. Right. And they're living in, you know, oh, yeah. a Ju- city that Jerusalem was the center of Judaism. It's not just the center. Yeah, it's the center of Judaism. You could say it was one of the, you know, epicenters of human civilization in, 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 the, in those times. You know, if you're making a short list of countries, or not countries, but cities, you know, if you're making a top five cities in, right. in the first century, Jerusalem, you know, could crack that list very easily. So, so. It's, it's not a backwater village with 20 people, in other yeah. words. Yeah. Right. So, and uh, they estimate sometimes at Passover, which is when all these events took place with Jesus, that a million people could have been in Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. So, okay. you know, it was... So, okay, so... I mean, we've hit the third point now. Let's let's bring it home. Yeah, let's bring it home. The fourth Rounding point third is base. The, uh, the the miraculous events in one religion destroy the probability of those of another faith are also true and vice versa. Therefore, accounts of such supernatural events in different religions nullify each other. Thus, all are eliminated by the others. This guy must have been awesome at parties. Okay, well, I, I again, I don't... I don't really buy this because that would seem to say that a miraculous the what what would let's be careful here the attestation of a miraculous event in another religion somehow contradicts the attestation of a miraculous event in a different religion. Why would that necessarily be the case? And so I think I think it, at this point it might be good to bring in uh, again talking about Lewis. I think it might be good to bring in what we actually mean by a miracle here, because I, in order to answer this, I think we have to be more precise in our speech. And so, uh, so, so this comes from Lewis's text miracles, which I highly recommend the reader or the, the listener check out. Uh, it's available on hoopla, for instance, in my mind, it is the best work to date I've ever read on the miraculous. And it's short. Uh, Lewis had an amazing ability to, condense a lot of stuff, a lot of ideas into very compact uh, texts. Uh, And so in order to talk about the miraculous, you first have to explain what you mean by the natural. And so this is, this comes from chapter two of his text miracles. He writes, I begin by considering the following sentences. Are those his natural teeth or a set? Again, Early 1900s, uh, that's sensible. I think my, yeah, my grandfather definitely had false teeth pretty early on in his time. Uh, Sentence two, the dog in his natural state is covered with fleas. Sentence three, I love to get away from the tilled lands and meddled roads and be alone with nature. Sentence four, 
Do be natural. Why are you so affected? Sentence five. It may have been wrong to kiss her, but it was very natural. Then he writes, a common thread of meaning in all these usages can easily be discovered. The natural teeth are those which grow in the mouth. We do not have to design them, make them, or fit them. The dog's natural state is the one he will be in if no one takes soap and water and prevents it. The countryside where nature reigns supreme is the one where soil, weather, and vegetation produce their results unhelped and unimpeded by man. Natural behavior is the behavior which people would exhibit if they were not at pains to alter it. The natural kiss is the kiss which will be given if moral or prudential considerations do not intervene. In all the examples, nature means what happens of itself or of its own accord. What you do not need to labor for, what you will get if you take no measures to stop it. And so then, in our case, when we talk about natural, what we mean is we, we conceive of a set of laws. So again, we have a conceptual model of how the world operates. But when we say how the world operates or how nature operates, what we really mean is in the absence of acting man. That's really what we mean when we say natural, in the absence of volition, in the absence of an actor. That's what we mean by natural. Okay, so then what is man? Man is, at least in part, a supernatural being, at least to the extent that you think that man is an actor, that he is not uh, also governed by physical laws. Uh, Certainly we are constrained by them. For instance, I am, at least as of today, unable to fly into the sky at a whim, Uh, but we, we possess free will, right? And so when man acts... That movement, say, is supernatural because it is outside the realm of the natural. And so then what is the miraculous? The miraculous, and that's, that's, that, that definition pretty much corresponds to Lewis. I'm just ripping him off. And then so then what's the miraculous then? Uh, in my mind, or I would say a, a, a good working definition of it would be the miraculous is uh, that which... Um, sorry, what happens when God acts, which is outside of the power of a typical acting man. So for instance, I am unable, much to my chagrin, to produce lightning between my hands like Raiden in Mortal Kombat. I think that'd be pretty sweet. I don't know how to do it, but I'm pretty sure God could do it. And so all you're really saying with the miraculous is that God acts. And I don't think that that is too incredible of a statement because we observe that man acts. So if man can act, why cannot God act? And why is it so inconceivable that he acts in a fashion beyond the realm of the power of man? We already know he did it once because he created something from nothing. He created ex nihilo. So uh, the possibility of the miraculous I don't find to be in any way contradictory any more than if you and I since we are programmers if you and I create a program we start the program running and then we interrupt the program in the midst of its run there's nothing contradictory about that that's perfectly reasonable Mm -hmm. okay so that's the definition of miraculous it's it's the actions of God which are outside the scope of man's ability. Simple enough. Okay, so now we can go back to his statement, which is that miracles in one religion 
destroy miracles in, a relu- in another. And so, well, no, they don't, if you take that as your definition. All you're saying is that God acted in one case, and now he acts in another case. And people of one religious bent attest to one of them, and people of another religious bent attest to a different one. There's nothing contradictory about that. All you're saying is two different groups of people observe something miraculous. Why does that contradict itself? The only way it would contradict itself is if there was some sort of message that went along with it that said, this miracle means that A is equal to B. And then the second group of people said, uh, this miracle says that A is not equal to B or something like that. Uh, Then you would certainly have a contradiction, but that's not usually the situation at hand. So I really don't know what the bellyaching is all about. Okay, well, I guess that's pretty good because it means now we can kind of dive in and say, all right, if you can understand what Lewis is saying there, and if you can kind of see, and I'm sure there's other people who have done a much much better job arguing against supernatural miracles than Hume. You know, maybe, maybe not. (laughs) I don't know, man. You you look at the new atheists and they're just... Failures. (laughs) Failures. <laughs> no, I don't want to say they're failures. I mean, come on. They're they're you know they're they're it's good biologists and neuroscientists, but the when, once they step out of their lane, man, it it's it goes downhill quickly. So we've already kind of covered this, but can we test if Jesus was raised from the dead? We're kind of saying that's that's not true. Um, I'm not really sure how to test that. Yeah. So I'm 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 fully prepared to take that as a faith statement. I don't know how to test it, but I am prepared to act on it. Either it's affirmation or it's denial. So what we are going to look at, too, you know, like I said, we have some historical evidence to overview and some physical evidence to look over. Okay. So the really all of the historical evidence for the resurrection comes out of the Gospels. You know, okay. We don't have any other accounts outside of the Gospels that specifically about the empty, you know, about um, Jesus being resurrected, or, or really anything from that last week of his life. That that all comes from the Gospels. Okay, so at, at, at this point, then, it, it it really does come down to, again, last episode we said, all right, Gospels were feeling good about their historical reliability. Miracles, mm. now we've just made an argument that miracles, although we're not saying they necessarily happened, they're certainly plausible in the presence of a divine being. Correct. And so now the question is, are we going to go along with them or not? Yes. Okay. So, so, but still, sorry, before you continue, still though, then we have to admit the, the, the onus is on us at this point because just because something is possible doesn't mean that that's the first explanation that you go to. Just like if, uh, <laughs> if uh, you find a mousetrap missing its cheese, uh, you don't presume it was uh, snatched by an angel. That is correct. Which is the, uh, that's the B-side of the old Warner Brothers show. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so if we're going to be examining the Gospels, what we really have to lean into a little bit is uh, the narratives themselves. Okay. So like we said, we have four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Luke and John. Mark and Matthew and Luke... kind of have a lot of... They have common source material, but they tell very different stories in some certain ways. So, yeah, so I'm going to go back to my role as skeptic here. So I still think the resurrection's a bunch of hooey, and in particular, you have these disparate accounts of what took place. So 
man, if they can't even get the details right, why should I take this seriously? That's a really good question. Let's talk about where some of those details don't jive. Okay. So, and we're talking about, here's some, you know, some of the burial and death situations here where are different. So the, the Matthew account, the criminals who are crucified with Jesus, there's two uh, criminals that are also crucified along with Jesus. Right, yeah. They so taunt in one of them, him. Yeah, and one of them they taunt him, and then the other, he's like, oh, remember when you get to heaven? Right, exactly. So in Matthew, the criminals just taunt him. In Luke, uh, they, they get a little chatty, and Jesus forgives one of them. Uh, in Matthew, you have the situation where they're, when Jesus uh, dies, there's an earthquake, and the tombs open, and the spirits of ancient Israelites start walking around Jerusalem and talking to people. That's always been uh pretty confusing it's kind of a big deal yeah so there is speculation that john the gospel of john says that jesus died i can't remember if it's thursday or saturday but on a different day than the synoptic gospels say really yes so Wait, you say there's speculation yeah, there's. Why can't you I just look at the text? I meant to. <laughs> I'll just. I'll, I will put some show notes. We'll, we'll put some of this in the show notes. Some article links on that. Okay. I meant to research that a little bit more so I could speak more deeply on it in this episode, and I didn't. But we'll put some show uh, notes in there. Um, one of the other things is, is Pilate agrees to release the body in uh, to Joseph of Arimathea, and. They, there's some people who believe that it'd be highly unlikely that a Roman governor re- release a criminal's body to. Now, why do they think that? Uh, just because uh, historically, uh, that was not policy to to let criminals. They would they would let the criminals die on the crosses and be eaten up there. We wouldn't let them have a proper burial. And the reason why is because in that culture, generally, um, you know, the burial rites that you would do. In any, not just Jewish culture, in any of those cultures would uh, allow you to go to the the next spiritual world, you know, or go to heaven or whatever. But if you didn't get properly buried, you wouldn't be allowed to do that. So it was kind of like a double, you know, whammy. It's just like, we're going to kill you mercilessly, and then we're not going to let you get buried properly so that you can go to. You can't even go to the afterlife. Exactly. No pennies for Sharon. Yeah. So a, a couple of the other things is like the 100 pounds of spices that Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus take to the tomb. They, the, the, just the thing there is, first of all, there's way too many spices. And secondly, they're not sure what the, why this event is recorded in the Gospels, because that wasn't the, the traditional Jewish burial sequence or what they even would have done. So, so these people are saying, look... They wouldn't have given up the body, and even if they had, they certainly wouldn't have wrapped. Of, of, they wouldn't have prepared it that way. Correct. Yes. Okay. And again, why do they say that? I'm I'm assuming it's evidence for how Jews buried uh, their people. Okay, got it. So, all right. Well, and, okay. And, so and you're making, actually you're making and, my and, arguments for me. This is great. I know exactly. I, I'm, exactly. I'm, I'm believing in it less <laughs> with every moment here. So, and then you have the stuff from the empty tomb where uh, you have. Uh, the the women are the primary people who discover initially that the t- tomb is empty. Look, between you and me, you know you can't trust ladies. Exactly. And uh, and so the, there there's that. Um, and then, you know, this is in favor. I guess here's one bullet point in favor is that the apostles start preaching in Jerusalem after the, and that's where this all happens. So that's that's one in favor there. Well, so, are we going to address those points that you just made? 
Oh, well, the, the women's, women's can't be well, witnesses. Yeah, the, the women, the spices, the giving of the body. Yeah, I can, I can, I can. Um, well, the, the one of giving away the body, uh, it's one of those types of deals where they have examples of, they have other examples of this happening. Of giving the body or not giving the body? Of giving the body. Okay. So the not giving a body is not is it's not like the strongest, um, it's not the the strongest argument against, and and then the so so then the people who make that case, what you're saying is, perhaps typically they don't do it, but it's not unheard of. Correct. Okay. Yeah. So on the the uh, the point of. The, that the Romans wouldn't give the crucified body back to their family or wouldn't allow for a proper burial. Yeah. There's physical and uh, historical evidence of them actually doing that. So they have found bodies of people who were crucified in their own family tombs. And they also have textual evidence of the bodies of crucified men were given back to their families sometimes. You mean um, like they found them in the family tomb and their feet and arms were punctured yeah or cut off or whatever you know they have evidence some type of evidence that the yeah. they, they were crucified Got it. and then there's textual evidence of like oh look how good we are we're gonna give this guy back to their families even uh philo who was a jewish writer says that uh the, that proper governors handle crucifixions at festal times either by postponing them or by allowing burial so just because you're gonna crucify someone doesn't mean you have to be a jerk about it exactly and so so, so there's that. Well, that um, brings up an interesting point, which is I know ostensibly the show is about uh, steel manning aspects of Christendom, but secretly it's about turning you into an anarchist. Yes. <laughs> so without the state, who would crucify innocent men? No one. Okay. So, and then on the spices, you know, like the, the Greek word there is use a litra. So a hundred Roman litra, that is a lot of spices. So... You know, what's we're not sure if John would actually meant that. Um, in the Greek text, it's litris hekton, that's the word. And if you add one letter, you know, let's say there was a, a letter added one way or the other, you get hexton, which would transform the meeting to about a pound. So, mm-hmm. so there could be a textual error there. It might be. Uh, one of those deals where he exaggerated for no reason. Oh my um, gosh! Well, it could how be can a, I trust the it Bible? It could be a measure of volume instead of a measure of weight. Yeah. So uh, he could be, and then you know what um, Foster says in his book, and like defending this, he says he might be might have been using hyperbole, you know, and that may be adding a point about Jesus's kinship or, or kingship, so or something like that. You mean so, like uh, <laughs> when you say? I'm coming over and I got a ton of burritos. Yeah. You don't have a ton. So, and Nate, I'm very disappointed in the number of burritos you've brought with you. And what I would say is um, I think it's interesting, all these differences in the narratives and some of the difficulties in the narratives, I would say that they're all very interesting, mm-hmm. um, but they really don't take away from the narrative itself or the validity of... Of the claim. Why don't they take away from the validity of it? One, th- one saying one thing, one saying another. Why doesn't that take away from the validity of it? Well, I, like the the two things that we just discussed, I would say they're kind of. Uh, the, well, the first one is just not a true claim that right. the Romans didn't give the bodies back. Yeah, sans the spice and the giving the bodies back, but still, you already mentioned some other stuff. So, like, uh, uh, you know, who arrives at the tomb first and that that kind of thing. 
Yeah, that that's that's true. Now, the the thing about who arrives at the tomb first, um, you have the different ladies coming in there, mm-hmm. uh, and they went. They you know that's pretty common that they went down first, and then. When you say common, you mean like in, in, yeah, in other I mean, deaths and burials? Yeah, between the four narratives. Oh, okay, the women between go the narratives. To the okay, okay. Mm-hmm. I think one of the narratives has just Mary Magdalene being there, but she's kind of the primary person in the story anyway. So, mm-hmm. uh, And then as far as, you know, who races down to the, to the tomb, um, you know, you have Luke explicitly saying Peter ran down there uh, first, and then um, you also have the people on the road to Emmaus say multiple peop- disciples went and looked. But that's not really a conflict. Peter got there first. We know from the Gospel of John that John and Peter both ran down there at the same time. Both were there first. But Peter was still the first one to look in, even though John beat him down there. Mm-hmm. You know, So it's, you're, it, it seems very conflicting or hard to harmonize to a certain extent, but if you just read them uh, without, uh, I don't know, if you, do, if you read them non-maliciously, there wouldn't necessarily appear to be some type of irreconcilable, um, you know, backbreaking uh, facts that, are not being, that can't be harmonized or that are just taking away from the narrative itself. And that is like there was an empty tomb and that his followers believed he had been raised from the dead for one reason or another. Okay. And I think that's, that's an important point right there, right? Is that, I guess, well, there's two there. One is that in a certain sense, the synoptics, you can quibble over details. And we're not really, again, at this point, we're not making an argument about Scripture as the Word of God. We're making an argument for the resurrection using sources that we have previously described as historically reliable. So we're, this, is not a, this is not an argument, this is not a discussion really about, is the Bible the Word of God? It's like, never mind. <laughs> we, don't don't care don't care <laughs> we're talking about other things right now we'll get to that eventually but you know you gotta you gotta build this thing up so previously what we had was we had the we had the gospels as historically reliable documents sans the miracles now we're going to investigate the miraculous some of the people that go against the miraculous will make some arguments that are I wouldn't say they're spurious, but they're easily dismissed, such as Romans don't give bodies back, and that's a way too much spice. It's like, yeah, who cares? We can we can dismiss those relatively easily out of hand. But the most important thing is that with respect to the content, the important points of the content, namely that the tomb was empty, there is agreement. And the other stuff could easily be... Um, explained by the fact that, yeah, all you're really saying is that different witnesses emphasize different facts, which any... Or remembered facts slightly differently, if w- we're just being honest. Sure, but but any any police officer will tell you that, who takes a, takes a witness's testimony, takes a witness's statement. And that's a point that Jay Warner Wallace makes when he talks about cold case Christianity. Are you familiar with that text? Yes. Yeah, that's a that's a great book. So you got this hard-boiled detective who's an atheist and he goes, "Well, okay, fine. I'll go and for reasons we won't get into right now." He goes, "Ah, okay, fine. I'll go and take a look at the the testimonies roughly of these four guys, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John." 
And when he looks at it, and from the standpoint of a cold case detective goes, well, this is exactly what I would expect. And, and I think that's roughly the case that you're making here, is that the things which seem irreconcilable are, in fact, uh, qu- quite easy to reconcile if you put it in the context of witness statements. Yeah, so, and just to go back to clarify what the Gospel of John says, so John and Peter run down to the tomb. Uh, John looks in, doesn't enter the tomb. Peter gets there after John and actually goes in there and sees everything, you know? Right. And then after Peter goes in, John follows him and goes in first. And actually, that goes back to uh, just kind of the end of the book of John, and this is a little bit not relating to this discussion, with the the end of the book of John is about kind of establishing Peter as, you know, reestablishing Peter as the leader of the apostles, kind of. And what's interesting is you have this little detail. It's like John beats him to the tomb, but he doesn't go in. He looks in, he doesn't. He waits for Peter to get there and lets Peter go in first, which is kind of interesting. It's an interesting detail. Um, and sure. it's totally lost on someone who cares with the person, or who, who, not who cares, but who, cares? who, who wants to refute these things. Uh, the thing that yes. they get hung up on is Luke and John have conflicting narratives when it talks about you know, the empty tomb in the morning. But, but it's really happens. superficially con- conflicting narratives. I would, like, I would say so. I mean, it, it's, it's, not hard to imagine a, it's not hard to imagine a scenario where, where all of these things take place, I guess is my point, and I think your point as well, right? Yes. Uh, now, there's a couple other um, points of contention that are, are good to point out. Okay. The first one is, is Matthew, uh, post-resurrection, kind of has this little story about how the tomb is empty, and the Jewish authorities go to the Romans and say, you know, let's make up this story, basically, and let's just say right. the disciples stealed his body. Yes, they stole the body. And then it just goes right into the Great Commission, and that's the end of the book. So yep. there's not a lot of details in Matthew. Yep. Uh, you you have the situation where Luke and John have a lot of conflicting narratives afterwards. The biggest one, and I think this is one of my—the uh, ones that I think are the— are the biggest problems for someone who's trying to say it's not a you know some of these differences are not a big deal? Okay, is that in in Luke, Jesus commands them to stay in Jerusalem. So you know he walks with the the, the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. Yeah, he gets there, he sees the other disciples, he breaks the bread. Yeah, you know, and he tells them. I believe that's. Um, I believe I'm getting. Let me just triple check that I'm. No, it, it wasn't at that ex- exact moment. It's when he appeared to them after that. And, but he did tell them, hey, wait here in Jerusalem until Pentecost, basically, and you, right. know, you get the Holy Spirit. They said, what's Pentecost? Yeah, so, and that's uh, Luke 24, 49. He says, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Right. So that would mean they stay those extra, you know, weeks of, I think it's seven weeks, right, from Passover to Pentecost. Stay here in Jerusalem. Well, in John, you have the narrative of them fishing in Galilee. Sure. And you're kind of thinking to yourself, well, those two things can't happen. And then if you start off in the book of Acts chapter 1, they're, they're, that's, the, that's the ascension. They're still in Jerusalem. Yep. And so it, it, it kind of feels like there might be some... And I don't personally, and I have not dealt into... I have not looked into it super deep, but in my personal opinion by reading this book, that was the one objection that I found to be most plausible, where it's like, if you feel like Jesus is God and he's resurrected, and he tells you to do something, such as stay here until you get the Holy Spirit, yeah, I think I would do it. 
<laughs> and then if for any reason they're back in Galilee, I would say, well, why would they even do that if they just had this experience? Now, there could be multiple reasons why. Um, now, now the big thing is that that last chapter of John, people think maybe it wasn't originally part of the text. Maybe chapter 21 of John was something that got added later. Or you have to say chapter 21 of John was something that was, uh, we go back to this political polemic, you know, redeeming Peter. And so it was written as a story to prove that Peter, you know, was redeemed as the leader. You know, really he denied was the Jesus first three times, and then he has to say three times that he loves him. Mm-hmm. And so the story is more of apocryphal. You know, it's not something that really happened. How far away is Galilee from Jerusalem? It's um, roughly like 60 miles, I think. Six zero? Six zero, yeah. Okay. Let's see here. I can walk four miles an hour, but I'm probably taller than those guys, so we can say they walk three miles an hour, take them 20 hours. So they can cover that ground in two to three days. Yeah, probably something like that. Mm. Okay. So. I don't know. Like, well, my my rejoinder to... I guess that, that's funny that you... I guess that, that's just the difference... One of the different, one of the many differences between you and I, I guess I don't find that to be that that big of a deal because I think to myself, well, you have the testament, the whole testament, of God telling people to do things, and I'm just going, nope, nah, we're not doing that. Or it's just like, <laughs> well, He said do this, but why stay here for six weeks? I'm going to go make some money, go fish, I'll right? Come back. Yeah, I, I, I can think of a number of explanations. I mean, that we're Jewish. No. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I can think of a number of explanations that would. They like that, to that parse words a lot and find meaning that isn't there to suit their own needs. <laughs> uh, so I, I, I don't know. To me, that that doesn't hold a lot of weight. All, all you're really saying is that people decided to go against the word of God. <laughs> yeah, and, and <laughs> the last thing on the historical habit. record, and we touched on this last time in the historical Jesus, is First uh, Corinthians chapter 15. And what what's going on in in you know we we last time we met we read those first like 10 verses, you know, kind of like the creedal statement. And like, this is what I preached to you. This is what was handed down to me according to the scriptures. Right. Yeah. But the rest of the chapter is kind of about how, is about the resurrection in general, but he's talking about a spiritual resurrection. And this was actually really troubling. It was a difficult passage for the Orthodox Christians when they were debating the Gnostics. So wait, 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 wait. So someone claims, someone's claiming that Paul is saying Sorry. Someone is claiming that Paul is making a claim about a spiritual resurrection, not a physical one. Correction. Like he was spiritually resurrected, okay. but his body wasn't resurrected. Who's making that claim? When and why? So the original people to make that claim were the Gnostic heretics. Okay. And well, you can't just tilt, tilt your hand like that and call them heretics. So they were the, the Gnostics. heretics. <laughs> <laughs> by, by definition, they're making a bad claim. Uh, okay. So when are they doing this? Like within within a hundred years of Jesus uh, dying. Okay, so, so you're talking one hundred to two hundred was when the Gnostic heresy was really ramping up. Okay, okay. So, but but just to put these things in context, we'll say seventy years after. So, sorry, let's get the timeline right. Um, based on our conversation last time, Christ dies maybe about thirty A.D. Yeah, sure. First Corinthians is written maybe fifty. Yeah, 50-ish, yep, Okay, 52. Paul makes the proclamation. Gnostics come along maybe 120 A.D.? Yeah, or maybe even a little bit earlier. You know, it's hard AD. to tell when the seeds of that really Sure, started. yeah. We're, we're, we're just ballparking here. 100 A.D.? Sure, does, yeah. Does that sound fair? Okay. Um, and they're saying, no, 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 
Paul meant a, a spiritual resurrection, not a physical one. Yeah, so I'll just read the passage here real quick. Sure. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 35, and you can read the whole chapter. It's all, the whole chapter is about resurrections, but he says, But someone will ask, How are the dead raised? What kind of body do they come? You foolish person, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and a glory of the stars, for stars differ from star in glory. I'll continue to read. But just you can kind of see the point. Paul is distinguishing between heavenly bodies and earthly bodies. Right. This is what the Gnostics find as a you know a point on their side, saying like, okay, we can say the spiritual is separate from the physical, and the spiritual is greater than the physical. So when they were talking about heavenly bodies, were they talking about like Gal Gadot, Jason Momoa? No, we're talking about spiritual. Oh, okay, gotcha. Yeah, so continuing in verse 42. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable, the body. What is raised is imperishable, some type of spiritual thing. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, came became a living being, the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven, being Jesus. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. So the Gnostics would say, look, Jesus, what he did, it's all about becoming spiritual. It's all about reaching a spiritual higher plane. The body doesn't ultimately count for anything. And I don't necessarily that's, think that's what those passages are saying. The Orthodox Christians would say you're reading that into the passage. But you can just see by reading it how they could potentially get that. Now, for someone who doesn't believe that the resurrection was real, and this is what some people who might want to stay Christian would want to say— I don't have to believe in the physical body of Jesus being resurrected to believe that he was resurrected in the spirit, you know, for example. Yeah, I guess so. But to, to me, I what did our good friend, was it Price, say? That's a weak read. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I, to, to me, that, that sort of argument is very similar to making the argument that, that Paul was for slavery because he told slaves to uh, respect their masters. Um, completely forgetting about the book of Exodus where that seemed kind of like an anti-slavery narrative if you had to choose. And so in my mind, uh, if you're, if you're reading that, if you're reading that passage, okay, I guess here's the thing, right? Is that you always have to consider the context. Now you might say how much context is sufficient. That's a fair question. We're not going to answer that, but, uh, at at the very least, I think it's worthwhile saying, yeah, maybe you can get that idea if all you read is 1 Corinthians, but you don't get to just read 1 Corinthians. You get to read 1 Corinthians, and you also get to read 
the whole of the Old Testament, and in particular, you get to read Genesis, where God calls the material world good and affirms the goodness of and affirms the goodness of physical matter. And then in particular, uh, you can make you might make that claim about the resurrection, but then you still have the problem of the incarnation itself, which is God becoming flesh, um, which you know, there's really no bones about that uh, in, in the epistles, and thus thus reaffirming the goodness of the corporeal. And so I don't, I think when you take that passage into context with everything else, and the fact that the Gospels affirm that, yeah, the resurrection was in fact physical, because again, why would Matthew write that the Jews wanted to say that the disciples stole the body if whether or not you think that, let's just let's just pretend that Matthew is is lying there, right? Uh, that that the Jews didn't really go to the Romans and say, yeah, the disciples stole the body. Well, the fact that he even feels the need to write that indicates that the body's gone, right? Correct. Uh, and so, therefore, um, if you if you take the whole testimony of Scripture, the whole testimony of Scripture seems to indicate. Uh, that there is not a value distinction between the spiritual and the corporeal, and that uh, the resurrection was physical. So I'm going to have to dismiss the Gnostics out of hand. I'll make two other points about Corinthians, um, because like I said, this is the primary passage for people who want to argue for only a spiritual resurrection. The first one is the book of 1 Corinthians is mostly about how to treat your body right because it's the temple of God. That's true. That that is the passage in there. And the whole Gnostic assertion was that and don't you know, sleep with the physical numbers. body is evil, and you can basically do whatever you want to with it because it's gonna be trash anyway. Right. So if you want to use your body for whatever pleasurable purposes you want to, that's perfectly okay. Oh, there it is. Yeah. It's more people like Huxley. So, and then the second thing I would like to, ju- I'll just finish reading the passage, and Go you can it. hear phrases in this passage that you can read out of context that you know, could give you the wrong impression. But if you read it in the whole context, it might be a little bit... It it, it lines up better with orthodoxy, I would say. That's a personal opinion, but I'll let you decide. So this is starting in verse (laughs) 15. We report, you decide. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We We shall not all sleep, but we shall be changed. In a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on the immortality, then they shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gave us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, and always abounding in the works of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. So, that's the end of the passage. I would say the the bow that Paul ties on this, you know, I think makes the most sense if you read it in an orthodox manner. It doesn't make a lot of sense... Um, if you're trying to prove that uh, your your body is evil and the spiritual is good, so 
But that is, if you read the literature and you read the people who are saying that the re- Jesus' resurrection was always spiritual, this is going to be one of their primary texts. So familiar yourself. Familiarize yourself with it. <laughs> <laughs> well, again, uh, I, as you know, I've only recently gone through the Chronicles of Narnia uh, as a grown man, much to my shame. <laughs> uh, the, I think the only thing more shameful I've done was when I went and saw the... Uh, in 2007, the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle movie in the theater. By yourself. By as myself. A, yeah. as, as a 27-year-old man, I, was like, I went in there and looked, like, oh my goodness, I'm going to get arrested. But, <laughs> um, but in so doing, I came up with what I think is uh, the best reading out of context possible. And so here it is. That's what we've got to be. Gay, C.S. Lewis. <laughs> <laughs> That's fantastic. It's from the silver chair. <laughs> it's when Puddleglum is telling them how they're going to have to act to get get out of the the castle of giants. They're going to have to act in a gay manner. Yes, and the silver chair is your favorite book, which I predicted. You got it series. right. You nailed yeah. it, man. I love this book. Yeah, it's easily easily the best one. Uh, but again, I, I I just can't I I can't take that criticism very seriously because. It, when you read the scriptures a whole, you would just dismiss it out of hand. So the 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 physical evidence that I want to cover in this show now, you know, Christianity has a great history of relics, and you know, we have a couple relics that are related to Jesus's death that have some very compelling physical evidence. Well, before we get to the relics, um, I, I kind of want to summarize where we are at this point. So uh, again. We we think that the the gospels are historically accurate, sans the miracles. We're discussing a miracle. We've we've brought up a few reasons to discredit the miracle, which is, uh, hey, the Romans don't don't give bodies back. And you're like, well, yeah, sometimes they do. And well, what about all the spices? Well, no, that's that's actually that could be explained with relative ease. Well, what about the inconsistencies? Well, it's not that hard to imagine a scenario where all those things hold true. But again, uh, just real quick on yeah. on the inconsistencies, you have the very interesting episodes in Matthew with the earthquake and the tombs opening. Yeah, they yeah. are not mentioned in the other gospels that you would think are such incredible events that they probably should have been mentioned. Okay, and I'm I I'm not going to say one way or the other because um, I think what we've been talking about, at least from my perspective, in your in our in the the two conceptual landscapes sitting here in this room. That's not enough to Conceptual say. Like, models. It's too inconsistent to make me believe that any of this is true. Well, it's not. Um, I, I guess here's the thing: is that like if you, that's that's why I think all this hope hinges on the resurrection. If you're willing to accept the resurrection, then I don't know. I guess the eclipse doesn't seem that big of a deal to me. An eclipse or an earthquake? You mean? Yeah. Well, I mean there was an eclipse too. Oh, there was. I forgot about that. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, remember when it went dark? That's right. The sun went dark. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean that's to, to, to me that that's why a Let lot me of these Google hinges. lunar eclipses and or solar eclipses in 33 AD. That's yeah. what we come up with. <laughs> well, but but again, to me that's that's why that's why the, so much focus needs to be put on the resurrection. Like if you're willing to accept that, then then the rest of this doesn't seem so crazy to me. But again, just because you've shown that a few attempts to discredit the resurrection fail, which is roughly what we've shown so far, that doesn't mean that it occurred. 
So I guess, I mean, isn't it just as plausible, for instance, that he didn't die on the cross? For what reason? More plausible for what reason? Well, I guess it's more plausible because I don't have any other than this tale. I'm not, I don't know of any other men who have risen from the dead. Uh, but it's conceivable that a man could say faint or swoon on under duress and then awaken later and leave. Sure. And I think the physical evidence that we're going to talk about a little bit would uh, disabuse us of that notion with this happening in Jesus's case. Okay. All right. Well then we'll, we'll, we'll put that one off to the side, but well, why let's go with the Matthew thing. Why isn't it plausible that the disciples just stole the body? I mean, you know, they had a good thing going with them. Uh, he made these claims of resurrection. You know, just slip in, get it, take off. Why not? I think there are some people who still believe that the disciples stole the body. And then I think that gets into what we talked about at the beginning of this episode, or what are the consequences of believing that? All right, so what are the consequences of believing that? Well, I think we kind of get into the Lewis stuff. Um, if Jesus was who he says he was... Um, and this is uh, Pascal's wager, right? Yeah, maybe. It's like, Continue. <laughs> I'll let you know. <laughs> so uh, from a risk standpoint, now let's say you're saying Jesus didn't rise from the dead. They stole the body. And let's say, for example, you're Jewish. You're one of these people in the first century. Well, then the risk is like life just goes on. I get to continue to follow my religion, which is pretty large religion, you know, and 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 have a really solid culture. This guy predicted the temple was going to get torn down, whatever. Not going to happen. Definitely. You know, like, you know and, and now today, um, what we're talking about is Jesus basically claimed to be the, the you know, tip of the spear of the only true religion. And if you don't follow him, then um, you're going to be, there is an afterlife, and you're not going to end up on the right side of that. And so... Uh, I think that's kind of what's at stake, I guess I would say. So so why really, does that mean the disciples didn't steal the body? Well, the consequences of believing that he stealed the body is that you, you have this, you're putting yourself at risk that, you know, you could either go to hell or just be wrong about, um, uh, you know, who God is, basically. Whereas if you just uh, pick Jesus and he is being honest about who he was, and these narratives are being honest about who he was, then you have everything to gain. Okay. Not compelling to you? Well, (laughs) I guess the main reason I think that the disciples didn't steal the body was because what would be the gain for them? It is very unclear what the gain would be for them. And, and, And that just shows by the way that they lived the rest of their lives. They got no gain out of promulgating this story that he was resurrected no finance they had no temporal gain in it and they didn't get wealth they didn't get uh, i guess they got some fame not the kind of fame you're looking for though so they didn't they didn't like make a lot of money and get a bunch of chicks no they basically got curve stop now say good night So yeah, and I guess to, to me that's that's 
and th- this is this is where we get into uh, you know, faith versus hypothesis, which is that you can hypothesize that the disciples stole the body, but then what you're saying is these people knowingly died for a lie, and and not just like died in some casual way, like died very, very poorly uh, in in sort of the worst possible ways. So I mean, you're the historian. What in terms of the testimony of the church, how did Paul die again? Paul probably, Paul probably got it the best. He probably just got beheaded because he was a Roman citizen. Oh, I thought he was one of the ones paraded around as a human torch. No. I don't. I and I am not uh, up on my uh, what, do, what do you call that martyrology? I'm an expert in nameology. <laughs> I mean, I know Peter got crucified upside down, and that's about it. And that doesn't sound fun. Yeah. Okay. Uh, it's, so to me, that's that's the argument against that. Okay. So you're saying you're saying we're going to get to the point where we're going to be convinced he didn't faint on the cross. So, and and so, to your point about stealing the body, yeah. one of the modern, uh, one of the modern assertions is that uh, they found Jesus's family tomb, right? So you got you got James Cameron out there, stick to f- trying to find Atlantis, James. You know, and uh, hey, you know, we can we can rip him all. Look, this guy isn't David Hume, all right? I like James Cameron. James Cameron made Terminator Two. Which is one of the best movies ever made. Yes. Which had probably one of the best Guns N' Roses songs ever made in the soundtrack. So let's let's be cool with James Cameron, right? <laughs> so anyway, they come out with this deal where it's like, okay, we found this this you know yeah the sar- tomb. sarcophagus box or what, what do they call it? It's not a sarcophagus. It's a whatever the bone box. Yeah, the tomb. And yeah. you know you got all these people with really common names in it. You know. Yep. Joseph, Mary, Jesus, brother of James, all this all this stuff. The problem is, is that that family tomb is a very ornate tomb. It's in Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. Um, this is allegedly where Jesus died. This is where allegedly where they're trying to say he stole the body. Right. If he just got buried in his family tomb, why wouldn't the Jews just say, "Look, he's in the family tomb." Right. He's in the tomb. Yeah, he's in yeah. the tomb, and and so it doesn't really make a lot of sense. Right. And funny, funny thing, I remember watching that. I think I watched that when it aired. Back in two thousand, I think it was seven, two thousand and seven. That sounds right to me. Did you Did you watch it? Oh, I remember watching it. I don't remember exactly. Did what the year Did it the was. family gather on the television with popcorn? Well, it, it was just one of those funny things where it's just like for like if it felt like for weeks. Let's all CNN would talk about. It. You know, <laughs> it's like let's let's put the pause on the war in Iraq. Let's let's debunk Christianity for right. a couple <laughs> weeks. <You know>? <laughs> <laughs> New psyop just dropped. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, re- I remember it too. Like it was this huge buildup thing, and I guess like there are two two points on that. W- one specific, one more general, which is that there just seems to be something kind of crazy to me that for two thousand years, like you can just imagine, like the narrative like, for two thousand years, no one knew, but then James Cameron figured it out. It's like really, there's come on. There's there's no way. Uh, but again, look, the liquid metal T-1000 coming out of the floor, amazing. Good work, Mr. Cameron. Industrial light and magic also. Yes, 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 yes. Yeah, you're right. I shouldn't uh, attribute to him what should be attributed to industrial light and magic. Okay, so the disciples didn't steal the body because it, it wouldn't have done them any good because really, really what we're saying is if the disciples stole the body, then they 
lived miserable lives for a lie they knew was a lie. Okay. Uh, on to the iconography then. So there's a couple different relics. Uh, the, the first one is one people are very familiar with, and that's the Shroud of Turin. So it is this uh, linen uh, cloth that a... You believe in that stuff. What stuff? The Shroud of Turin. I do, personally. Okay. Well, this will be, this will be good. Okay, so and if we're talking about our conceptual landscape, I can say, here's the hypothesis that you can make with the Shroud of Turin. Okay. Was Jesus of Nazareth buried in this cloth? Okay. And I think that you can form some very good hypothesis in the tests that have been done. You can very easily come to the conclusion that that is a true statement. Really? Yes. Please regale me. So the shroud is a cloth that is purported to be the burial uh, cloth that Jesus was wrapped in. Who first, who first claims this and when? So the, the historical evidence that we have for the cloth um, kind of comes from, you know, the, the first record that we have of it in the historical record is probably like the year 800, surviving record that we have is in the year 800. Okay. And at that time it was... Uh, you know, claimed that this was Jesus's burial cloth, and it has a image of a crucified man who was beaten to death on it, front and back. So the person who was wrapped in this cloth, the it was, uh, it was covered. He the per- man was covered over the the short end. So you can imagine it was a very long cloth. They put him on one side, and they they took the other side and wrapped it over his body back down to his feet. Okay. Okay. So, um, and the person who was in, who was buried in this cloth, he, he was, first of all, he was crucified. How do he, we know that? Because uh, of the blood stains. So like they were in the right places. They were in the right will, places. Like, the, the, like near the hands, near the feet. Yeah. Okay. He, he was flogged. How do you know that? Because uh, of the blood stains. <laughs> so in other words, injuries on the back. Injuries on the, and, and the front and okay. the legs. So okay. you, if you can imagine the front and back of the legs, the front and his stomach and his back. Okay. Then you have the crown of thorns. Okay. So he had some type of apparatus on his head that caused an incredible amount of bleeding in his in, around his head. Okay. Yeah. So he's wrapped. So there's in, just blood everywhere. Yeah, just blood everywhere. Okay. So the interesting thing is this is always, uh, and it's been through a lot. It's been to multiple different places in the world, and it kind of ended up in in in, in Italy. In this church, so at around the end of the nineteenth uh, century, someone had the idea: let's take a photograph of this thing. And then what they realized is they took a photograph of it, and it, it, it they realized it was a photographic negative. So when you take, uh, if you have, if you take a photograph of a negative, you get a, a photograph as a negative. Take a negative and a negative, that equals a, a positive, man. So, so, and you get this really vivid picture of this person. And it's not just a photograph. It has some type of th- special 3D qualities in it. And it kind of reveals a man. And the image on the cloth was not created by the blood. No one knows who what created that image. So in 1978... Wait, 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 wait. All right, let me make sure I'm getting this right. Okay, so you've got, you've got this bloody cloth. Okay. The nature of the bloodstains indicate 
a man who was under severe duress uh, and, and injury. Okay. The injury is consistent with flogging and crucifixion. Okay. And then they take a photograph of it. And when you say the photograph is a negative, that doesn't make sense to me because I thought, isn't it when you take a don't isn't it the case that when you take a picture, like a negative is produced on the I don't know anything about photography okay, on that, the opposite that, side of the frame or yeah okay I guess I'm not a photographer I guess I'm out of my lane a little bit here okay but the the thing is that the photograph kind of revealed that this the image on the shroud which was not caused by the blood or anything it's just very thin image and when you say the image on the shroud what do you mean by that there's an image on the shroud there's an Im- there is a image created on the shroud and no one knows how it's there. In the photograph or on the shroud? On the shroud itself. What do you mean an image on the shroud? I don't know are there any other way to explain this to okay. you. It is an, <laughs> there, there is some type of image put on the shroud. They don't. No one knows exactly how it got there. Like, like an. There's imp- no medium. Like an impression. Like yes. an impression. Like, like. I, 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 sorry, I'm trying to think this through. So, for instance, you could, you could wrap. You could wrap my head in a cloth, for instance, mm-hmm. um, and maybe you. Maybe before you do that, you put a bunch of, I don't know, dye on my face or something like that. Correct. You wrap the cloth on. Now there's an impression and an outline of my face on the cloth itself. Is that roughly that what is, you're saying? That is correct. Is that roughly what you're saying? Yes. Okay. So then what happened here is people have said, oh, there's got to be some type of medieval forgery, you know? So in 1978, the Vatican gave a team of scientists. 48 or 72 hours to scientifically study the shroud itself. Okay, wait, hold on a second. Is is it is this unique to the shroud? I mean, so for instance, are there other sh- are there other shrouds running around that also blood on them and so you could ju- you could just take photos that aren't attributed to Christ, you can take photos of those and go, oh, yes, that's Joe who lived in 70 the, the AD. The image that's created on the shroud, there's, the shroud is one of a kind. Is from a, a artistic or impression, like you saying there's an impression on the shroud. Yeah. There's the type of image that was created on the shroud. Yeah. There is no other example that we have of something like this. Okay. It so is, the, it is so this is thing. this is unique among shrouds with other bloody imprints, in other words. Oh, yeah, sure. Because the blood is really, okay. it, the blood is just soaked into the thing. The blood and the image have nothing to do with each other. Oh, okay. Those are separate ideas. A, they're not ideas. They're just separate or, things. Or separate There's blood stains observations. on the cloth. Okay. But there's also an image on the cloth. Okay. Okay. So let's, sorry. <laughs> You've studied this. I'm, I'm catching up. Let's review. All right. So we have a cloth. We've got blood stains. The blood stains are indicative of a man crucified who was also tortured prior to that. There's also an image on the shroud. Uh, and then when you look at, say, the population of shrouds, there's only one that has an image on it. That is correct. Okay, and now this image, it was investigated for 72 hours under the permission of the Vatican, and go. And in 1978, they tried to say, okay, we want to figure out how this image was created. Was it some type of photographic technology? Is there some kind of pigmentation? Is, you know, what, what is this? And what they learned is, that, and this, the weave in the linen is a special weave, and, and it really only comes from ancient Judea-type deal. It's like, okay. They found pollen on the shroud that is from 2,000 years ago in Judea, Samaria. Um, 
So how do you know the pollen is from 2000 years ago? They tested it somehow. Okay. And if you want to read the research, uh, Barry Schwartz, who was a member of the team, he runs the website called shroud.com. Okay. And he, he was, he's a photographer. He's also Jewish. And what's interesting about him is he hasn't converted to Christianity. He doesn't really know what to think of the resurrection, but he does personally believe that the, the shroud itself is the burial cloth of Jesus of Nazareth. Okay, so he's he's at the point where it says, yeah, this was Christ. I'm not going along with the whole resurrection thing, but this was definitely on Christ. Yes. So the image... Wait, so a guy named Schwartz is Jewish? Yeah. Okay. So the image, what they learned is that the image, it's not pigmentation. There's no burning. There, there, there's no type of chemical process that they can identify with the image itself. The image is also so thin on the fibers. It's like four millimeters thick, which is like a tenth of the, you know, the width of your hair or something like that. Maybe it's micrometers, I can't remember. But it's so thin and so faint um, that it's even incredible that we can see it. Uh, so it's just one of these things that, um, it's, it's just one of these very incredible things. Now. If it was the only thing, only relic that we had involved with Jesus' death, you know, it, it has enough evidence in and of itself, but it's not the only piece of fabric that was attached to Jesus in the tomb. So we know from the Gospel of John that, uh, and I'll just read it real quick. John 20, starting in verse 3. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going towards the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him, and he went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. So we have two different cloths we're talking about here. We're talking about the linen cloth, which is the shroud. And, we're, and then there's the face cloth. Now, this the face cloth uh, we have in our possession, it's called the, and I'm not going to pronounce this uh, correctly, it's the Pseudonarium of Ovio. And I believe Ovio is a town in Spain where uh, this thing is. It is kept in, let's see, yeah, Ovio, Spain. Yes, it's kept in the church there. And it's a much smaller cloth. What's fascinating is this cloth was wrapped around Jesus' face, and it is soaked, it is just absolutely soaked in blood. It, and what's wild is that the blood type on the shroud and on the face cloth are the same uh, blood type. What's also interesting about the face cloth is that they have evidence for that cloth, historical evidence. We know this cloth existed historically, baiting, references baiting, dating back to 570. Um, and so... Uh, so that's pretty incredible. Obviously, it if it if we have references to it um, in the year five hundred ish per se, it's probably a lot older than that. But the bottom line is that the blood stains on the face cloth in the shroud match, and there's way more blood on the face cloth, and they're actually the same blood type, which is pretty incredible. So this face cloth and this linen shroud wrapped the same person, which is pretty amazing. It also helps because a lot of people, when they say, oh, the shroud isn't authentic, will say, oh, we only have evidence from the shroud from this year, you know, and it could be really late. Or we only accept evidence for it from this year. It could be a medieval forgery or whatnot. Um, 
and uh, but the face cloth having both uh, doc uh, both cloths available to us put it way back. And then you also have, like I said, you have the evidence from the pollen. There's actually new research. I think this is on the um, the face cloth itself, and this was pretty recently published, just a couple years ago, about how there's there's a there was a bunch of dust and dirt that was in the nasal area on the face cloth. And what they think might have happened is when they took the person who was wrapped in the cloth off the cross, they, he might have like slammed face planted or something, you know, and a bunch of dirt and stuff got up into his nose, which is pretty wild. Anyway. Um, so real quick, you, so you say there's an image on the shroud. Is there, is there an image on the face cloth? No. Okay. There is no image on the face cloth. Which is interesting. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm just trying to piece it together. Okay. Okay, so uh, let's see if I get this right. To summarize, we got, the, we got the shroud, blood consistent with torture and crucifixion. We got the face cloth consistent with, uh, again, torture, I suppose. Um, same blood type, so cor- corresponding to the same person with... What, do you know the distribution of blood types? Are they all like one, yeah, one so eighth the, probability? The, the, the blood type on the shrouds AB. Okay. And in our modern world, that's only about like in, the, in North America, it's only about four percent chance to have an AB blood type. Okay. Now that doesn't mean that the, the that distribution could have been different in sure. the mi- Middle East two thousand yeah. years ago. Yeah. But if the the blood type that is on the shroud and the face cloth is a pretty to for at least in the modern world is an uncommon blood type. Yep. Okay, gotcha. All right, and then there's there's an image on it. Why is why is this image important? You so I mean it's it's, it's, a, ca- it's some type of miracle from the perspective of no one knows how it could have been created. Okay, 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 okay. So that's that's the big deal with the image is that is that this is we haven't we haven't seen anything like this previously. Yes, and uh, just real quick, I'll, I'll address that in a second. One other thing about the blood, the blood stains on these cloths are, are reddish. And usually what happens with blood when someone dies or, or blood dries on something, it, it turns black very quickly. Yeah, it turns brown and black. Yep. Um, the reason it's red is because when someone undergoes a lot of trauma, yeah. it chemically alters the blood in such a way that it would dry in a different color, essentially. Really? So the, actually the, the red color, because people used to say, okay, well, the fact that the blood on this on this cloth is red is clear proof that... It's some type of forgery. It's actually more evidence that it is actually real. Really, that's or at least not real. It, that it, it's some the person who was buried in it was tortured, undergone incredible trauma. Right. Um, now about the image itself, there's a really great documentary. It used to play on the History Channel every Easter. I don't know if they still run it. It's called The Face of Jesus. I have a link to it. We'll put it in the show notes. Uh, Ray Downing. He was a uh, he was a graphic design. He is a graphic artist, and what he did was he took the data from the shroud and created a three D model of Jesus, basically artistically. Oh, okay. And the the reason he was able to do that is because the shroud itself, the image on the shroud, contains three D information. And he actually worked with some guys from the Air Force, who um, they had some technology that the Air Force developed in the eighties and nineties, and to create like three D topographical maps. And they said, this is what this actually looks like. Like the image and the, the way the data is presented on the shroud itself 
kind of matches the technology that we were using to create top topographical maps and computers in the eighties. Right. Really weird stuff. Yeah. Um, but anyway, he, he, he had a great, and he, in his documentary where he's creating this 3d model of Jesus, he goes over a lot of this evidence that we're talking about right now. And then he did a follow-up session from that, you know, in the you know early 2011, 2012, where they do animated scenes from the gospel narratives with those mo- like the model of Jesus that they created from from that from the from the first show. Very fascinating. So for the fun of it, I presume that the model that he constructed roughly looks like a Middle Eastern man. Yeah. He doesn't look like a Swedish guy or something like that. Well, yeah, and like we can know things about who like Jesus, you know, I I don't remember exactly how tall he was, but he was pretty tall for his time. I think he was about 6 foot. Mm-hmm. You know, he had a lot of he at the time he was crucified, he had a lot he had a full beard. He had he had long hair, you know, and you can see his, a lot of his facial features. It's pretty fascinating. Hmm. Well, okay. Well, I, I do have a follow-up question, but um, is that the evidence you wanted to present on the Shroud? Sure, yeah. Okay. And I, I mean, I will put some notes in the links. Uh, Barry Schwartz, like I said, he, uh, the Jew who was the photographer on the Sturt Project, he runs this website, and there is ongoing research on the Shroud that still happens today. His website's really cool. There's a lot of great information on there. He also gives a lot of talks on YouTube and does a lot of interviews. So if you're interested in this topic, you can go see his interviews. You can also see, uh, watch this Ray Downing documentary, which is also very fantastic, which kind of summarizes a lot of the information I just presented to you. So, Okay, so two questions then. So, again, with, with what you've told us about the Shroud... What we have is we have a a bloody shroud and face covering consistent with someone crucified and tortured, and we have an image that we can't explain. Why are these attributed to Christ as opposed to any other poor fellow who's been crucified and tortured? Well, I would say, first of all, oh, the other thing I forgot to mention, I, I don't think I remember, is that he was stabbed in the side, too. So okay. they have the side wound gushing out. Okay. Well, it perfectly matches the the story of Jesus in the Gospels. Like, who okay. else would you attribute it to? I don't know. Well, and, and the thing is that it <laughs> I don't. Is I don't always, know how com- I don't know how common. Yeah. That that kind of thing is being like, how many shrouds do we have? How many, lying how many around? crucified people get crowned of thorns? I don't know. How many crucified I, people get you know stabbed in the side? Yeah, I, don't know. I don't know. I would say just the historical. You know, besides the the scientific evidence, which is pretty incredible. Um, tagging this to the first century. Now, there was a controversy in the 80s where they carbon dated part of it, and they said it, you know, the piece they carbon dated was between 1100 and 1200. Well, the the piece that they cut out the carbon date there on the on the edge of the shroud, they had sewn in an extra piece of cloth so that when people would display it publicly, they would hold it up. Yeah. And so when they did the carbon dating, instead of cutting a piece from the original cloth, they cut it from the part that they would hold up. Ah. And lo and behold it, you know, didn't end up in the first century. Um, so with that, even today, most secular scholars say, well, that whole carbon dating project was, was bad. It's bad data. They didn't, it wasn't, um, they didn't take the sample from the right place on the shroud, et cetera. Okay. Um, so I think, I think the answer to my question then is that you're saying, well, no idiot. It's, it's more than that of, of the, of the examination of burial shrouds that we've seen previously, there really aren't that many. Maybe there's only one that has wounds that are consistent with the story that's given in the Gospels, and th- and therefore, if it's not Christ, 
wow, what a coincidence. And and, and the, the probability is so small that you might as that, that you're willing to go, you know what? Based on how small the probability is that it was someone else and we have the testimony of the church, I'm willing to go, yeah, this was this was the shroud of Christ. Yeah. And so I think uh, you know, in for for example, in a in a jury trial, if you're trying to prove this is, you know, the dar- the burial cloth of Jesus Nazareth, I think you'd have a really uh you'd have a very um, great shot at winning that case. Uh, so the other thing, the thing that isn't that it doesn't really pertain to is the resurrection itself. The image, um, and this is just a personal which, which was which was my second question. Okay, so let's just let's just assume then that this is the burial cloth of Christ. So what? What does that have to do with the resurrection? Well, I think, and th- this this becomes a matter of faith for me personally in my conceptual landscape. The fact that the image is on there, and we have no idea how it got there, any means. I mean, we've sent people to the moon. We've, you know, we've. I mean, we, we've done. Humanity's done amazing things. We've never been able to duplicate the image on the shroud. My personal belief is that it is some type of, um, after some type of uh, proof to the resurrection. It's some, some kind of marker of the some resurrection. some kind of mark of the resurrection. Okay. Now I have no reason to. I have nothing that I can hypothesize to prove that per se. Mm-hmm. But my thought process there is there's no discernible reason why this image could be there. It's an incredible image. We 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 can't even begin to fathom how it was created. So um and people have tried to think up some ways. You know, it's like maybe there's some radiation there, so you know, this, that, the other thing. But why wouldn't it just be an image of, or some type of uh, nascent, just after effect of the resurrection or something like that? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, so, um, then I think the other thing about Christianity is that, uh, you know, it kind of starts with the, inc- the, the one of the unique things about Christianity is the incarnation of Christ himself coming to be in the physical world as a human being. The grand miracle. That is a grand miracle. And I, I think through the years, the fact that, and this goes back to why opposing the Gnostics is important, is that the physical world matters. Redeeming the physical world matters. And part of the way that uh, Christianity interacts with the world is that it uses the physical world to do that. And the shroud is just a gift. Mm-hmm. Like, if, if you look at this, if you meditate on it, if you, it's really hard to look at an image of the shroud Look at the blood stains. Look at those images, and not just be like, "Wow!" Like what Jesus did for me was really just mind blowing. Um, you hear people who have really uh, visceral reactions, to, like watching a movie like The Passion of the Christ or something like that. Sure. Um, you know, before movies, the Shroud was you know that's the best ticket in town. You know, and so, and what's amazing is that all the things we know about the Shroud that tie it to the first century we've learned in the last 100-ish years. Hmm. And and I think that's also kind of a thing that God does. He works in certain ways, like kind of through prophecy, you could maybe say, you know, like this is some type of prophetic thing where sometimes you don't understand something for a long time, but you believe it. And then God chooses to start revealing things. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. and I think the shroud might be one of those types of deals. Gotcha. So, and that's just all my personal opinion. But uh, I think for someone who is struggling with, was the resurrection a real event? 
or did Jesus... Um, and the other thing about the shroud itself is that we have an historical record of the shroud being found by those two disciples, by Peter and John. Right, um, right. And now here they are 2,000 years later, and we are pretty sure that those are them. Isn't that kind of also proof to what P- what Peter and John experienced is probably reported accurately? Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. what's really fascinating about that is people will try to say the Gospel of John is is more of, uh, you know, uh, religious propaganda. Well, they don't talk about the linen and the face cloth in the Synoptic Gospels. The only place we get that is the Gospel of John. It's pretty incredible. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. it would seem tied to a real historical event. So I think all those factors kind of put the physical evidence of the Shroud right up there with anything that you can also, you know, you don't need the Shroud, but why not have it? And this goes back to why, if God's willing to allow this thing to survive, yeah. who knows what those two pieces of cloth had to go through. What we do know about the early Christians is they put a very high emphasis on uh, preserving, for example, the bones of the martyrs or just of Christians in general because they believed in the resurrection. Mm-hmm. They also put a high emphasis on uh, you know, retaining these types of things, uh, possessions and things like that from... Uh, people like the apostles and the martyrs and stuff like that. So, and we are beneficiaries of that today. So, I think it's pretty cool. Okay. So, uh, you kind of introduced that section on the shroud uh, by I had originally asked you, wouldn't it just make sense to say that Christ passed out on the cross uh, and, or swooned or something like that? And you said, well, we'll discuss that in the shroud. So I once again put it to you, doesn't it just make sense to say that Christ just passed out on the cross, woke up later, and left? Well, if you're stabbed with a spear through the heart, you're not going to wake up. Uh, why do you think he was stabbed? Th- we know he was stabbed in the side. Because the man in the shroud was stabbed in the chest with a spear and had blood gush out of that wound. And that would have been a... That was he stabbed been... in the side or stabbed in the chest? Well, let's look at the picture. Okay. <laughs> I would just Google a picture of the shroud real quick. You can see what it looks like. Let's see here. Shroud image. So, so well, to, to keep our story straight, in the gospel, he's stabbed through the side. Right. Okay. And so what you're saying is that the shroud is consistent with him being stabbed through the side, but also indicates uh, heart trauma. Um, I can't, I, it, it does, I think it, I, I, I can't remember if I'm correct on this. I think it does indicate some type of cardiac arrest and that comes potentially from some of the blood stains. I can't remember though. Okay. Actually, I, I, am a little bit out of my element in, in, in saying that, but I'm, I'm like looking at a picture of the shroud, like, and obviously the, the viewer or the listener can't read me, but the, the spear wound is literally like, right right here right right on the rib cage right on the rib cage mm-hmm. and that guy's toast mm-hmm. he's not gonna wake up so you know. so you're you're he's crucified yeah the man's crucified he's laid in a rigor mortis position and he's been stabbed in the side of the chest right by his heart and so I so I think what you're saying is that if we if we take the testimony of the shroud seriously the great deal of blood loss as well as injuries indicated by the shroud would be such that no one's walking away from that. Yeah, that, that's correct. That's the claim. Mm-hmm. Okay, got it. Okay. Well then, 
So to summarize then, I think, tell me if I get this, I'm sorry, are you, was that what you wanted to cover on the shroud? I Yeah, that's what I wanted to cover on the shroud. I'll have a closing quote and you go ahead and say what you were going to say. <laughs> closing quote. Well, I just wanted to summarize what I think we, we've stated so far, which is that, okay, so we kind of dismissed Hume at the beginning. We gave a definition of what we meant by miraculous. We showed that it's not, there's nothing irrational about God acting in his own creation any more than it's irrational that you and I act in our creation. Um, we had previously talked about the Gospels being historical, sans the miracles. So now we're going to examine a miracle. In particular, we're going to examine the resurrection. We discovered that the claims of it being a purely spiritual resurrection don't stand up in the context of the full scripture. Uh, that claims that the Romans don't give up the body fail a historical examination, that there's too many spices, as ah, not a big deal, that the supposed inconsistencies can be dealt with in a relative easy fashion that still doesn't prove anything. But I think what is indisputable is that no one's disputing that Christ was crucified, that he was executed by the Roman state. I don't think that's really under consideration here. And I also don't think it's the case that anyone denies that the tomb is empty. Because as you have pointed out, if you wanted to discredit Christians, all you could do is just go, oh, no, he's right over here. So, I mean, like, if you take anyone who dies today, you can just go, no, look, they're, they're, they're buried right here. It's no, what, what, what are you talking about? And so then the question becomes, what do you make of the empty tomb? And so you might propose a theory like, well, maybe he didn't really die on the cross, but as you've pointed out with the evidence of the shroud, uh, no, in fact, it's the case that the, not only the testimony of the Gospels, but as well as what can be observed on the shroud indicates a treatment so heinous that no man's walking away from that. And even if they did, they're not making, far, making it far if they do wake up from it. It doesn't make sense to say that the disciples stole the body because why would they die for something that was a lie? They weren't getting money and checks the same way you might get it today. And so you have this difficult conundrum, which is everyone agrees he was executed. Everyone agrees the two is empty. The sort of easy explanations for the empty tomb fail. When I say everyone, I would say most everyone. Yeah. Because there's always somebody. Sure. Because yeah. we all have our own conceptual answer. Strong, sure. strong level, large numbers. Sure, sure, sure. Uh, but but anyway, the the the, po the point the point still remains that um, you have this you have this conundrum now that you have this empty tomb and the explanations put forth just don't hold water. So now that doesn't mean that he resurrected, but at the same time, it's very difficult to say what really took place. And so now, to me, this is, for me personally, this is where we come to the point of faith. I don't know how to test the proposition at this point that Christ rose from the dead. What I do have is I do have the testimony of the disciples' lives. These men seem to be transformed from men who would abandon him in his hour of need, which is recorded quite clearly in all of the Gospels, to men who were fearless and would die for something which is quite incredible in my own mind. And so we have their testimony. And so 
I don't know how to, again, affirm or deny this. So it is a faith proposition for me. And so now we have to consider what are the impacts on action. And I guess I choose the, to believe in the resurrection of Christ because I have yet to come upon a better explanation that fits the data. That explanation is not inconsistent because the miraculous is not irrational, as we talked about earlier. And if it's true, what that means is that the origin of all that is has disclosed himself to me and others, which, if true, brings a great deal of comfort. And so that is why I... It's all so you can sleep easy at night, Ian. It's all so I can sleep easy at night, and also because it fits all the data, and because it's not irrational. So that is why I choose to believe it. Yeah, and I'll just, uh, you know, before we close out, I do want to read, this is the the conclusion of the introduction to this book, The Jesus Inquest by Mr. Foster. And the reason I read this is because I feel like he's a kindred spirit with what we're trying to do with the show. The other reason I read it is because his inquiry into the resurrection is way better than what you just got the last hour and a half as far as like better organized, really well um, communicated. Should we just throw this out and leave a link to the... Leave the book? Well, no. I mean, I think this has been a really fun discussion and we touched on a lot of different things. But I will just, you know, read this from Mr. Foster. And I, 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 I saved this quote because... Um, I use the internet for almost all my research, and he goes after the internet. So <laughs> he said, uh, the internet sees with assertions from convinced Christians that the resurrection can be proven beyond reasonable doubt. I don't know what anyone who says that sort of thing can have been reading, but I do know that it can't be the relevant evidence, or at least they can't have been reading the evidence with any historical or forensic perspective. I shudder to think of the sort of faith that rests on such certainties. It is surely different in nature from mine. You can only make beyond reasonable doubt assertions if faith has dictated the course of the trial. And a trial like that is no trial at all. Such faith as I have proceeds stumblingly from the conclusions of the inquiry that is in this book. Faith had absolutely no part to play in the inquiry itself. And the reason I read that quote is because I feel like what we're trying to do with what we talk through today is we're not starting from a place of faith. We're trying to put all the data out there correct and explain how we got to our faith decision essentially yeah so we're not trying to tell you this is how to consume the data this is how you should think about the data this is the data and this is how we consumed it and and some of the reasons why potentially and the evidence that we did choose to consider valid and maybe there's some other evidences or or interpretations that we didn't consider valid and here's why and you have to make your own decisions about that Right, so. and I, I and again, come back to the, the idea of affirming or denying something. If you deny the resurrection, all well and good, but then you have to come up with a competing, you have to come up with a competing hypothesis that better fits the data than the resurrection itself. Now, admittedly, you don't have to. No one's putting a gun to your head. But then the other thing you lose is you lose the disclosure of the origin of the universe to humanity. And again, perhaps you'll say, no, you're being stupid. Uh, in this other religion, God did that. Okay, fine. But then you have to say, fine, in that other religion where God disclosed himself to humanity, is the story given there 
more plausible than the one we just gave. That's really the argument you have to make. So either you have to make that argument or you have to think that as of yet, God has not disclosed himself to us. These are the options that you have. Awesome. Well, uh, thank you, Ian. This is going to wrap up season one of this show, and we're going to have to go back to the drawing table and see what we're going to talk about next. <laughs> so It'll be fun. Season two coming up next. Yeah, so I hope you all have been uh, enjoying these first couple conversations we had, and uh, we will see you next time. Petra, we'll see you out. This has been another episode of the Steel Creed Show on Earth as it is in heaven. <laughs>